Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. On today's show, I speak to Dave Karp, the professor who dubbed Brett Stevens the bedbug um, and caused Brett Stevens to get off Twitter, So, which is an impressive goal in itself. Um, I also, by the way, I have a new podcast that I'm doing with um, none other than Matt Taibbi. It's called Useful Idiots. You can rate and review that on iTunes and subscribe. I hope you will. And I bring that up not just to plug it, but also because on this week's episode, we speak to Ellie Valley about the Brett Stevens controversy. And Ellie is an amazing artist, and he drew with Brett Stevens, and he also shares his his personal interactions with Brett Stevens, so you'll definitely want to hear that too. Um, also, I have a, uh, a bonus episode with Dave that you should listen to where we talk more about media bias, we talk more about how that works or doesn't work, and also he answers your questions from Twitter. Thank you so much, Professor Dave Karp, uh, for joining me, for making your debut on the Katie Halper Show. Happy to be here. Yeah, uh, we I met you years ago. I, was it at Netroots Nation? Is that how Netroots, I met you first? Netroots Nation, and I think we went to Drinking Liberally in New York together for a couple Oh, right, years. yes. So you, you used to live in New York, and now you relocated to D.C.? Yeah, I was a professor at Rutgers for two years, 2010 to 2012, and just lived in Brooklyn and took a very long train commute, and then I moved to George Washington University in 2012. Got it. I'll read your bio for listeners. Dave Karp is an associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University, where he's taught since joining the department uh, in 2012. As you just mentioned, he previously spent two years as an assistant professor at Rutgers University School of Communication and Information. His research, his research explores the Internet's impact on political associations, both in the formation of novel organizational structures seen in Move On and Daily Coast, and also tracing the implications for more traditional advocacy organizations. His first book, The Move On Effect, The Unexpected Transformation of American Political Advocacy, was published in May 2012 by Oxford University Press. His second book, Analytic Activism, Digital Listening, and the New Political Strategy, was published in December 2016 by Oxford University Press. So welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. And you are right now um, in the headlines because of an interaction that you had with the esteemed um, climate change questioner, um, Arab brain diagnoser, Brett Stevens, um, who's also unbelievably enough uh, or kind of on brandily a New York Times op-ed columnist. Um, Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, this has been a really weird week. So, um, I think as context, there was a story on Monday afternoon, just the headline was that the New York Times newsroom had bed bugs. And I just finished teaching my first class this semester. I saw that story. I saw everybody was making like riffing jokes on it. And I was trying to come up with the best joke I could. And at least in my section of Twitter, the people in my Twitter feed, every time Brett Stevens writes an article Everyone complains about how obnoxious it is, how irritating it is, and how it seems like you just can't get Brett Stevens out of the New York Times newsroom. Mm-hmm. So I thought the people who I follow and who follow me on Twitter would kind of chuckle if I said, the bed bugs are a metaphor, the bed bugs are Brett Stevens. Uh, I wrote that. Basically, no one laughed. It got no retweets. It got nine likes. I, up until now, did not have a big Twitter following, so I was aiming for like maybe three retweet, retweets and 20 likes. So... I was, like, slightly disappointed that not as many people giggled as I thought would giggle. Right. Um, and then I came home, I put my kid to bed, I go about my normal uh, business, and at uh, a little after 9 p.m., I get an email titled, 
from Brett Stevens, comma, New York Times, which was coming from his New York Times email address, uh, where he just lambasted me saying that I set up new low for civility on the internet, saying that I should come to his house, meet his wife and kids, and call him a uh, bedbug to his face, because that's what would have intellectual integrity. Uh, and importantly, he CC'd the provost of my university on this, which immediately signaled to me that not only was he randomly finding this tweet from a Twitter rando and yelling at him, but that he wasn't actually asking me about civil discourse. He was trying to exercise his power by trying to get me in trouble with my boss. Right. Uh, so the thing that occurred to me then, since I studied digital politics for a living, is, and my first thought was, this has got to be a bit, how can this guy have even seen my tweet and how right. can he be this thin-skinned? Um, but the second thing I thought was, look, I, I study internet politics. I know what happens next in this story. So I then posted to Twitter that a, a well-known New York Times, I made a joke about a well-known New York Times columnist that got zero retweets, nine likes. He just emailed me. He didn't like being called a metaphorical bedbug. And people on Twitter picked that up and were like, it's Brett Stevens, isn't it? It's got to be Brett Stevens. Uh, right. And they, people started chatting on Twitter and it was going a little viral. And so then I said, okay, fine. And I posted the email. And since the email was even more absurd than I had made it sound, right. people started really riffing on it. And here we are three days later. Wow. So, and how many likes and, and retweets did it have again? Uh, when it's uh, when he found it, it had zero retweets. Right. It had nine likes. You got to work okay. really hard on a random Monday night to find that tweet, and you got to work yeah. harder to be offended by it. So, do you think? So, does he just uh, search Twitter? Does he just do a, a Twitter search for his name? Well, I didn't. Yes, yeah, so I didn't even use his Twitter handle. So, right, you just use his name, right? Yeah, he's he's right. got to so have some. Right, he's got to have some social media monitoring service that tells him every mention of his name and then looks through for whoever offended him so he can yell at them and tell their boss. Like, not right. cool, man. Right, yeah. Really, yeah. Or he could just, if he has the time, he could just literally go search, um, right, do a Twitter search of his name, in quotes. Yeah, but uh, first, I mean, Brett Stevens is a normal enough name that, like, that takes Yeah, day. you're right. Yeah, you're right, yeah. Like, Netflix is still really good. He should have a different hobby. There's great TV yeah. on to watch instead. So uh, you caused him to move, um, to, to, to hibernate from Twitter, which he yeah. not only, he actually announced on MSNBC. Yeah, he, he canceled his Twitter account that night. I don't know how long he's going to stay off Twitter, though. Like, if you're spending a random Monday night searching your name on the internet, right. you're probably somebody who's going to end up back on social media. Right. Yeah. And why do you think this upset him so much? Enough that he would write a, an email to you and your provost? So I, I don't I don't really get it. It's super weird. Um, the thing that stands out in particular, that there was a, uh, a story that I'd read a couple times several months ago where uh, a young, I think it was a Deadspin editor, um, had sent him an email, just sort of a, you know, a frustrated email after writing, re writing one of his, reading one of his columns saying like, hey man, you should quit. And right. Stevens and give, looked the and guy donate up. Your, and donate your um, That's salary right, yeah. to, um, um, to Mimi, the Palestinian protester. Yeah. So I remember seeing that this journalist had sent him that note, and he looked the journalist up, saw that he was, he was a journalist, and then wrote this long patronizing email explaining how you know he needs to understand how much more powerful and how much better Brett Stevens is than he, and right. like he needs to learn to respect because you never know when you'll need Brett Stevens. Yeah. Um, so the, he the sits on these award I, committees. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He sits on these award committees and like someday you'll, you might need a job from somebody who's going to ask me what I think of you. So you better respect. Yeah. So the, the only thing that, that can occur to me 
that he's finding this joke, finding a way to be offended, and then contacting me and my boss. Uh, really, really, my boss's boss's boss. He doesn't understand how universities work. Right. Um, but the only thing that really occurs to me here is that this is a guy who thinks by virtue of his position at the New York Times that people shouldn't be allowed to make fun of him. Right. And he then spends a Monday night finding people who shouldn't be allowed to make fun of him, making fun of him, and then reaches out to them to tell them that, to sort of flex his uh, reputational muscles and tell them that they ought to pay a price for saying bad things about Brett Stevens. Totally inappropriate. Yeah. So the, the point that I, I've been trying to drive home here is I think it goes, it, it actually operates the other way around, that if you're going to have such a, a public social position, if you get to have a New York Times op-ed page, then what comes right. with that is people get to tell silly jokes about you on the internet. That's part of the social contract. He thinks right. it's the other way around. Yeah, exactly. Um, and of course, the extra irony here is that he is someone who likes to mock the idea of safe space. He likes to, um, you know, talk about how important free speech is. Yeah. Yeah, he, but, he thinks that... Millennials need to, to toughen up their skin to survive in the real world. And I've been thinking a lot about safe spaces lately. Once you designate some spaces as safe, you imply that the rest are unsafe. It follows that they should be made safer. That is an important insight. It shows how easily an impulse to shield and protect the vulnerable quickly becomes a desire and then a demand to impose a particular concept of safety on others, whether they want it or not. Get out of your own safe spaces. Narrow your criteria for what's beyond the pale. Safe spaces, physical and intellectual, are for children. He's such a white guy that the worst thing, he's such, he's such a like privileged white guy that he's never heard a tougher thing said about, on him on, on the internet than he's a metaphorical bed bug. Yeah, even Come Jensen, on, Chris, um, Jensen, the woman who was, um, who he was talking to, the M MSNBC host who was talking to was like, is that really the worst thing you've, heard, you've been called? Um, is that the worst thing that you have ever been called on social media? <laughs> yeah. um, and then he tried to uh, play the kind of, um, Nazi, uh, you know, Holocaust card, I think, personally. Um, he, he's talked about the history of, of calling people bedbugs and, and talking about infestation and, and comparing people to insects, which is, of course, true. But um, was that where you were coming from? Yeah, uh, no. No, hot take, I, contrary to popular belief, yeah. Contrary to popular belief, there's only three sentences involved in the joke. One of them said, there's bedbugs in the New York, New York Times newsroom. Right. And another was, this is a metaphor. So right. no, I was not saying that he, he he's vermin. I was saying right. 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 he's right. that obnoxious thing you can't get out of the newsroom. Right, right. Also, you were not calling I, for his extermination as a people, yeah. Yeah. Because that I, would I, affect I, you and me, for the record. Right, We'd yeah. be in that same extermination plan, yeah. Right. Also, I'm Jewish. Also, until I got interviewed about this, I didn't realize that he was Jewish, which I knew oh, I Oh, interesting. But, yeah. yeah. Well, he is. I'm going to, I'll say, so you don't have to. I call him a Park Avenue Jew, that type of yeah. Jew. Right? Yeah. They're very waspy in their affect. Um, and uh, I went to school with some of them and some of their kids. Uh, they're very waspy in their affect. They're kind of like white shoe style. Yeah. And, but, you know, and, and to be, you know, he's very uh, uh, critical of Palestinians. Of course, you don't have to be Jewish to be that. Um, he's very pro, quote unquote, pro Israel. You don't have to be Jewish to be that either. 
Um, but he has talked about, he has some, said some really offensive things about um, Palestinians. Uh, he's also basically his, his, his first op-ed at the New York Times was doubting climate change, but also was so poorly sourced. And this kind of gets to the like white male privilege that he has. And I, I think that term gets thrown around a lot, um, sometimes for good reason, sometimes not. But in this case, it really is. I mean, how entitled and privileged are you to not even bother fact checking or try to get away with lying in your first um, op-ed column at the New York Times? Um, and what he did was he it was like the one thing that he said that had any facts in it was incorrect. And, and I should mention, I'm an old climate activist. I spent uh, oh, right. about half my life at the Sierra Club. So when I first, when he first appeared on my radar, it was with that column, and immediately the question which I and everybody in my Twitter feed were asking were, "God, this guy's so irritating. How can the New York Times newsroom not get rid of him?" Right. And we've been saying that for like two years ever since. Which, you know, it's not the best joke in the world, but that's the reason why the joke was pretty funny for the people right. in my sector, uh, my area. It has right. nothing to do with extermination of, of yeah. human beings. Of course, right. Um, although he's not a, he doesn't oppose that. Let's be honest. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So he wrote, by the way, in his, in his brilliant, um, in his 17 paragraph column disputing the certainty of climate science. Um, he, he had written anyone who has read the 2014 report of the intergovernmental panel on climate change, IPCC knows that while the modest 0.85 degrees Celsius or about 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit, Warming of the Northern Hemisphere since 1880 is indisputable, as is the human influence on that warming. Much else that passes as accepted fact is really a matter of probabilities. Then uh, Joe Rom at Think Progress pointed out that the IPCC report says that 0.85 degrees Celsius of warming was global, not just the Northern Hemisphere. The Times corrected the mistake, but let lie Stevens' false claim that such warming is modest, as Rom notes. It is roughly the same as the entire variation of the Earth experienced during the several thousand years of stable climate that enabled the development of modern civilization, global agriculture, and a world that could sustain a vast population. So, again, sloppy, not just bad politics, but sloppiness. Um, and and you, as a, someone who is a climate change person, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure you were especially infuriated by that. Yeah, yeah. The New York Times had just brought on a climate denier to their op-ed page, and the first thing he did was sloppy climate denial. Right. Not a great look for them. And he should yeah. maybe spend less time Googling his name and more time working on his columns. Right. Um, there's a great piece in um, Splinter. Hamilton Nolan kind of compiled some of his, his greatest um, hits, uh, Brett Stevens' greatest hits. And I just think it's important because, the, as so often happens in civility speech, as long as you, you say something extremely offensive in politish language um, or highbrow language, it's okay. But if you say something that's either a joke or you, you or you curse, which you didn't do, but you know, the, it, in, in terms of the power dynamic, you know, as long as you say things in New York Times op-ed acceptable language, you can say the most dehumanizing things. Um, but you can't even make a joke about bed bugs. So um, I just want to take the moment to share some of his greatest hits. So he said, "I'm not sorry, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed." The operational mastermind of 9-11 was waterboarded 183 times. I'm sorry KSM remains alive nearly 12 years after his capture. He has been let off far too lightly. As for his waterboarding, it never would have happened if he had been truthful with his captors. It stopped as soon as he became cooperative. As far as I'm concerned, he waterboarded himself. Interesting. On Palestine, 
In 2005, Israel vacated the Gaza Strip. It became an enclave of terror. On Sunday, four young Israelis were run over in yet another terror attack. The ideal of a Jewish and faultlessly democratic state is a noble one, not at the risk of the existence of the state itself. Meanwhile, anyone genuinely concerned with the future of the Palestinians might urge them to elect better leaders, improve their institutions, and stop giving out sweets to celebrate the murder of their neighbors um, on Palestinians' blood fetish. Other Palestinian attacks include the stabbing of two elderly men and an assault with a vegetable peeler on a 14-year-old. Um, uh, the significant question is why so many Palestinians have been seized by their present bloodlust, by a communal psychosis in which plunging knives into the necks of Jewish women, children, soldiers, and civilians is seen as a religious and patriotic duty, a moral fulfillment. Um, the Arab world's problems are a problem of the Arab mind, and the name for that problem is anti-Semitism. So long as an Arab athlete can't pay his Israeli opposite the courtesy of handshake, the disease of the Arab mind and the misfortunes of it will continue. Anyway, there's there's much more. And then um, he calls institutionalized racism an imaginary enemy. He said that Black Lives Matter has metastasized into the big lie of America. So, yeah, he's basically um, a well-rounded um, bigot, I would say. He's, and I, I think his niche is trying to concern troll the left from yeah. the New York Times op-ed page. Right, um, yeah. One of the things that's been interesting for me in this whole three-day saga, I've gotten a lot less trolling, uh, right-wing trolling than I imagined. Mm -hmm. I imagine this would be horrible, and it's not been horrible. Right. Um, and partially that's because as a tenured white guy professor, there's – not a lot that people can do. I'm not particularly threatened, and right. I'm just not a very good target. But I think right. the other part is that, as we saw with Trump tweeting about this yesterday, the Trump supporters don't like Stevens either, which right. means his entire niche at the New York Times, he's not even appealing to the heart, to, to the right wing. Right. And he's yeah. just there to needle the left, right. which luckily for me meant that the people who would usually spend the past few days making my life hell – kind of sat in the sidelines and giggled at Brett Stevens with the rest right. of us. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was such a babyish move, right? It was such a snowflake move um, to use the language of the right that I think people were embarrassed. So yeah, he got, and he's at the New York times, right? So he got hit yeah. from both sides, from all sides. Yeah. And you didn't, I mean, I just don't think anyone thought this was a good look. Yeah. Um, would you go to his house and, and call him a bed bug in front of his wife and children? I mean, I, I would be willing to go to his house and explain the joke to him in front right. of his wife and children. Um, right. It looks like he's actually, he's accepted an invitation to come to GW and have this oh, conversation yeah, I saw with that. me yeah. in public. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I am excited to get up on a stage with him and explain the joke to him and to everybody else who wants to come and watch. Right. He won't get paid, right? Uh, I haven't heard one way or the other, so I, I can't say he won't get paid because no one's told me, but... I don't think so. Yeah, I hope not. Yeah. And so, again, it's just it's amazing. He, 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 he tells basically he tells people to grow up if they need a safe space. And, yeah. he, and he says that that's like, you know, um, coddling and, and impairing people's development. But uh, do as do as he does, not as he says. Yeah. So tell us more about what you are, are working on um, and, and how this this incident relates to that. Well, so broadly, I teach strategic political communication. I taught that class on Monday and on Wednesday. Um, the nice thing is he definitely wrote my lesson plan for me. We yeah. just talked about this in class yesterday. Um, right. So I teach about things like how political narratives go viral and how activists who aren't in, aren't in positions of power can create leverage and create power. Um, mm -hmm. So this is kind of a, a natural case study that if it had happened to somebody else, I would have been talking about anyway. 
Um, the past year, I've actually been on a, a totally different project. I uh, wrote a piece for Wired Magazine last October. I've been studying the history of the digital future, so I've read all of Wired uh, chronologically cover to cover. Um, so I've been on sort of a, a less political kick for the past year, just trying to focus through, just trying to look through how we think technology is changing our society and over the years, what, what we tend to get right and wrong about that systematically. Um, and part of the, the way that that, the only way that that impacts this is we've been bemoaning the loss of civility online for at least as long as there's been an internet. Um, mm -hmm. And pretty much always the people who are complaining about the loss of civility, particularly when they're saying we need more civility and there are people with power who are complaining about the civility of people who don't have power, what they're actually, it's, it's not about civility, it's actually about power. Right. What they're saying is that they want people to stay obsequious and respectful of their betters. And this is, right. an, again, a textbook case of that. Right. Yeah, the, and the, the, thing that, the thing I've been thinking about a lot, actually, is, this is only tangential, but I think it's relevant. Um, the, the thing that stands out for me is the lack of proportionality with students. Yeah. Um, it was both a milk toast joke and also a joke that was getting no traction. Right. Um, if if I had been engaging in serious hate speech, or if I had sure. like been you know threatening him and his kids, and it, and or it got a lot of traction, I think it would have been totally appropriate for him both to email me uh, with that email and to CC the provost. Yeah, I, I think the reason why he's now getting summarily dragged for by the way way longer like I can't believe it's Thursday we're still talking about this, but yeah, um, I think he's getting so summarily dragged because it was such an unproportional response that it makes it that much funnier. But right. the other thing I'd point out is I, I think people are having so much fun with this because it doesn't matter very much. Like he's uh, probably going to come back on Twitter eventually. Right. Um, he's going to have a new nickname, but the guy didn't have, I'm, I, like he was going to end up with a, a sassy nickname because a lot of people don't like the guy. Um, I'm probably going to go back to professorial obscurity where if you study digital politics, you've heard of me. And if you haven't, right. you haven't. Um, so, like, at the end of the day, when the dust settles, this isn't going to matter for very much, um, which has allowed it to be lightweight fun. Um, right. But I think that's the other thing is, like, people, I, I think it is best to be engaging on social media with a sense that most of this stuff matters at most only a little. So, of course, as usual, you can go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. And I will see you next week. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. 